Welcome back to A History of Hannibal. I'm not your host. I'm Rob Monaco of the podcast History of Our World, and you're about to enjoy the next installment in Jamie's excellent program. Here's episode 61, Greece 101. In the Second Punic War, there were five theaters of war. Italy, Africa, Spain, Sicily, and Greece. We have now brought the first four of these up to speed in 212, ready for covering the last stage of the war. Rome's resurgence following the capture of Capua, winning Spain and Sicily, before finally moving on to Africa. But we have one last theatre to catch up on. Greece. I've barely touched on Greece throughout this series, other than mentioning that Philip of Macedonia and Hannibal had made an alliance. So today we're going to fix that oversight. As I've barely touched on Greece so far, and as this is what I would like to consider a comprehensive history, we will be examining what Greece was like, who were the main powers, with a historical overview. Then we shall begin our Greek narrative with Polybius, possibly going all the way to the end of the Greek narrative, or stopping in 212. I haven't decided yet. Ancient Greece is one of the oldest civilizations on the planet, going back to 1500 BC, and the palace cities of the Minoans, the most famous example of which is Knossos. Should you wish to see what historians in the 1930s thought Knossos looked like, you can visit and see their reconstructions, dominating the site. But I would also highly recommend visiting there if you are in the region, along with the archaeological museum in Heraklion. I enjoyed my visit to both very much. While the Minoans are a very interesting civilization, I've been doing some reading about their water collection in palaces lately. It is of very little relevance to us. It will suffice to say that the Minoans rose and fell, as did the Mycenaeans. With the fall of the Mycenaeans, towards the end of the second millennium BC, Greece entered a Dark Age, of which we have little written evidence, just legends which may perhaps have grains of truth in them. It was said that the legendary Theseus, he who defeated the Minosaur, drew together all the inhabitants of Attica to form the city of Athens. A group of raiders, the Dorians, arrived from the north, taking control of much of Greece, leading to subsequent migrations from the less warlike natives, the Ionians and the Aeolians, who would colonise the western coast of Asia Minor. Some of the most famous Greek cities were there, Ephesus, Mytilene, Halicarnassus, etc, etc. It was here that Greek thought really began, science, medicine, philosophy. These came from the eastern Greek cities, but back to Greece proper. Greece was divided into hundreds of polis, notoriously difficult words to define. A polis could be a city, or it could be a state, so it often gets translated as city-state, though in context only one of the meanings may be being used. Over the centuries, these various states rose and fell, some of them with names you should recognise. Argos, Corinth, Sparta, Athens, Thebes. After unifying to defeat a Persian invasion around 500 BC, 
the states continued squabbling. A particularly notable example of this was the Peloponnesian War, fought between the rural, Dorian, oligarchic land power of Sparta and the urban, ionic, democratic naval power of Athens, both with vast alliances, the Peloponnesian League and the Delian League, respectively, in which Sparta was eventually able to defeat Athens. However, this was a Pyrrhic victory. Sparta suffered so badly in the victory that only 30 years later, in 371, she was defeated by Thebes in the Battle of Leuctra and lost her hegemonic empire. Thebes became the biggest bully on the playground, but it wouldn't last, as new powers were rising in the north. Southern and eastern Greece was organised into polis, but in the north and the west, the polis was not the dominant political form, it was the ethnos, a more rural creation than the urban polis. These ethni became similar to kingdoms, Thessaly being the most powerful state in Greece for a short while. But ultimately, it was the kingdom in the north which would become dominant, Macedonia. Under Philip II, Macedonia would become the master of Greece, and under his son, Alexander, Macedonia would conquer the Persian Empire. Then, Alexander's empire broke up into various states following his early death in 323, such as the Seleucid Empire, Ptolemaic Egypt, and Macedonia. These states would battle throughout much of the 3rd century BC, which brings us kind of up to speed. By the time we are involved in Greece, there were three groups of importance, the Macedonians, the Aetolians, and the Achaeans. Since 221, Macedonia had been under the rule of Philip V, and he ruled the northern half of modern Greece. Philip was determined to restore Macedonia to its former glory, and for that end would ally with Hannibal of Carthage in 215, something we discussed in episode 45, Philip. Now, if you think of modern southern Greece, there is the Peloponnesian Peninsula, connected to mainland Greece by a narrow strip of land in the east, the Isthmus of Corinth, of which, a bit further east, is Athens. Now, if you turn to the long, thin strip of sea to the west, the Gulf of Corinth, our other two major powers sat on either side of that. To the north of the Gulf sat the Aetolian League, which had a direct border with Macedonia in the north in Thessaly, and sat opposite was the Achaean League in the Peloponnese. Now, just as Macedonia had allied with Carthage to pick off Rome from both sides, Macedonia sided with the Achaeans in wars with Greece, as together they could surround the Aetolians. The Achaeans were the more powerful force of the two leagues. Originally based in the northern Peloponnese, they had expanded their influence to even annex Sparta in the 220s, though it must be noted that Sparta was not really a serious threat to anyone by this point. So, with Philip trying to push his power westwards, we shall break into the narrative with Polybius, joining him in 217, which he begins to describe in Book 5, Chapter 101. This was before Philip made his alliance with Hannibal in 215. Philip spent the summer attacking various Greek cities, 
before heading to Argos, in the northern Peloponnese, to attend the opening of the Nimian Games. It was here that word of Hannibal's victory at Lake Trasimene came. Though word came through to Demetrius of Pharos, a man we met in the interbellum between the First and Second Punic War, as the ruler of much of Illyria. Demetrius had lost against Rome, and he urged Philip to abandon his current war against the Aetolians, to take Illyria, and, eventually, Rome. The Achaeans were favourable to Philip, and the Aetolians disheartened at their recent defeat. Now, Rome had suffered such disaster at the hands of Hannibal, now was the time to strike. Philip was easily persuaded. He didn't want to make it appear that he wanted peace, though. That would make the Aetolians more bold in demanding terms. So, he attacked them some more, taking a few settlements, and offered a peace where both sides would keep what they had at that moment. The Aetolians were quite happy with this. Polybius then places a very interesting speech into the mouth of Agegelus, an Aetolian, who was trying to bring about peace. If you will allow me to quote from Book 5, Chapter 104. It would be best if the Greeks never went to war with one another. If they could regard it as the greatest gift of the gods for them all to speak with one voice, and could join hands like men who were crossing a river. In this way, they could unite and repulse the incursions of the barbarians, and preserve themselves and their cities. But if we have no hope of achieving such a degree of unity for the whole country, let me impress upon you how important it is, at least for the present, that we should consult one another and remain on guard, in view of the huge armies which have been mobilised, and the vast scale of the war which is now being waged in the West. For it must already be obvious to all those who pay even the slightest attention to affairs of the state, that whether the Carthaginians defeat the Romans, or the Romans the Carthaginians, the victors will by no means be satisfied with the sovereignty of Italy and Sicily, but will come here and will advance both their forces and their ambitions beyond the bounds of justice. I, therefore, beg you all to be on your guard against this danger, and I appeal especially to King Philip. For you, the safest policy, instead of wearing down the Greeks and making them an easy prey for the invader, is to take care of them as you would your own body, and to protect every province of Greece as you would if it were part of your own dominions. If you follow this policy, the Greeks will be your friends and your faithful allies in case of attack, and foreigners will be the less inclined to plot against your throne, because they will be discouraged by the loyalty of the Greeks towards you. But if you yearn for a field of action, then turn your attention to the West, keep it fixed on the wars in Sicily, and bide your time, so that when the moment comes, you may enter the contest for the sovereignty of the whole world. Now, the present moment is by no means unfavourable to such hopes, but you must, I entreat you, put aside your differences with the Greeks and your campaigns against them until the times have become more settled, and concern yourself first and foremost with this aspect of the situation which I have just mentioned. 
so that you retain the power to make peace or war with them as you think best. For, if you wait until the clouds, which are now gathering in the west, settle upon Greece, I very much fear that these truces and wars and games, at which we now play, may have been knocked out of our hands so completely that we shall be praying to the gods to grant us still this power of fighting and making peace with one another as we choose, in other words, of being left the capacity to settle our own disputes. Now, the important thing to remember about this passage is when it was written. Polybius was rising in the 2nd century BC, after the sackings of Corinth and Carthage in 146, writing for a Greek audience who may have been rather confused as to how what was in their opinion the greatest civilization in the world had been conquered by barbarians from Italy. This was explaining Roman history to the Greeks. They had been disunited, and so Rome, not satisfied with her position at the end of the war with a large, well-experienced army, turned east almost immediately. The source is not telling us that this was expected to happen in 217 BC, rather that by the 130s, educated Greeks had some understanding of what had just happened. If you think back to the very early episodes, I made reference to Polybius Book 6 when describing the Roman constitution. Polybius greatly admired the mixed constitution of the Roman Republic, with the Senate being more powerful than the people. Book 6 only begins a page or so after this speech ends. Yet more reasons why Rome was so successful against Greece. Also, I don't know about you, but I find it really funny that the Aetolian asks Philip for peace now, one of his reasons being that he can do what he really wants, i.e. kill Greeks, particularly the Aetolians, once the situation in the West has calmed down. So, to sum up, 217. Philip and the Aetolians made peace. This made the Romans very nervous. They had just been trounced at Lake Trasimene and had no intention of opening up another front of the war. They would instead see if they could keep Philip away from Italy by sending feelers into Greece, looking for an alliance. And with the onset of winter, we shall end the episode here for this week. Now, we covered most of Greek history incredibly quickly there, and it is a very interesting story, so there are places you can go to find out more. You should all be well familiar with my Alexander series by this point, so I'm going to recommend a voice that you heard at the start of today's episode. Rob Monaco and his The Podcast History of Our World. Firstly, Rob does excellent stuff. There is good material, and I like listening to his podcast. That makes for a good show. Now, the really interesting bit for me is his topic. I assume that Rob is insane, because he is attempting a global history. He has already done Early Man, Ancient Egypt, the History of the Old Testament, Ancient Mesopotamia, Persia, and has been working on a series on Greece. He's so far done a full 13 episodes on what I crammed into 5 minutes, with a couple more still to come. It's good stuff. That's again, the podcast History of Our World by Rob Monaco. 
Seriously, give it a listen. Since I've had that huge plug, I won't do my normal ones, just a couple of different ones. For those of you who haven't checked out History Podcasters yet, you should do. Historypodcasters.com is a great resource for finding history podcasts, and the second collage has been released. Seemed like a good idea at the time, with a lot of talented podcasters contributing, and me too. I talk about the Antonine Wall, so that's fun. Also, if you could send me a message via Facebook, email, Twitter, or whatever, saying what you thought of the Let's Talk, I would really appreciate that. Did you like the topic being something a bit different? Do you have anything you would like me to talk about in the future? Let me know. Oh, just one rule. Not the need. Anything but that. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon to talk more about Greece.